0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser Frederick, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Anna Sabau about her new book, Riot and Rebellion in Mexico, The Making of a Race War Paradigm. Anna, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Ethan. Thank you so much. It's, uh, thank you so much for having me here.
0: I am very excited to talk to you about your book, which is very, very intellectually rich for what a relatively short book it is. But I was wondering if you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, of course. Um, so I am, um, I'm an assistant professor uh, at the University of Michigan. Um, I teach in the, in the Department of Roman Languages and Literatures. And um, I'm a specialist in Latin American studies. Um, I guess that broadly speaking, I'm, my work thinks about how cultural analysis um, can help us open paths for thinking about, um, you know, the history of social struggles in, in, in hopefully innovative ways. Um, and I mainly focus um, on, on the study of Mexico in the, in the 19th century and questions, you know, about um, the production of race and, and uh, indigenous studies uh, in this context.
0: Could you tell us how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. So the book actually started as my as my dissertation project, and um, at that time it was a project about revolutionary imaginations that um, went sort of beyond, you know, or or weren't really concerned with nation building. And as I was doing the research for for that project, I just really became fascinated with. Um, the Caste War in Yucatan. Um, that, for those of you who might not be familiar with it, is uh, was an indigenous uprising that erupted in 1847 um, in the Yucatan Peninsula. And you know, there's there's a lot of interesting um, intricacies about about this uprising. But it was uh, one of the things that you know really interested me is that um, it basically produced um, an autonomous region that was under the control of, of rebel communities for nearly over 50 years. So it's one of the lengthiest um, indigenous rebellions, at least in Mexico's history, if not in Latin America um, at large. And uh, and interestingly, too, they had the, the, there's access to, unlike, you know, with other um, peasant or indigenous revolts, where it's really hard to find sources that document, you know, the, the visions of the people who were participating in the rebellion. Here, there's sort of like a pretty vast archive of letters um, that were written, um, you know by people participating in the rebellions either to disseminate messages you know among rebel communities or also to negotiate with state authorities um and i was just really fascinated by these documents and and sort of like thinking about um, how they were working or sort of like grappling with the limits of, um, of the ways in which, you know, liberal universal equality had been um, practiced and, uh, and implemented, you know, in, in, in Mexico and Yucatan at the time. And through that, I just became really interested also in sort of like seeing the discrepancy that existed between, you know, the, the political imaginations of that were in some sense, registered in this letters and the narratives that were um, constructed, you know, about the case war in um, novels, newspapers um, of the time, you know, where the, where the rebellion was really sort of like presented as uh, an uprising whose main objective was the elimination of whites in the region. And so when you look at the letters, you know, that were penned by, by, um, Either collectively by Maya communities or by some of the, the the Maya leaders of the rebellions, you can you see a much more complex uh, engagement with race, you know, and a much more and a, and a, a very rich um, political imagination, you know, and and ideas about what emancipation was, you know, for these communities. Um, and so I just I think that from then I just really became interested in in um, trying to collect, you know, sources that um, that talk, you know, that showcased this discrepancy. And so that's sort of like how the archive of the race war paradigm started, where I started collecting, you know, this very pervasive um, concern that, you know, criollo elites had with, um, with race war or racial conflicts.
0: Well, it makes sense that you start with the Yucatan and the research process, but as, as we'll get into as we walk through the chapters, you very quickly move into a number of different regions and time periods. But one thing that I was particularly struck by is how many fields of study you engage with and how many different kinds of sources you're working with, from colonial revolt pamphlets to inquisition censorship of plays and then muckracking racking tell alls in the 19th century, just to name a few. So how did you find yourself working with this wide variety of sources? And then how did you try and approach them? I'm thinking about, I'm in the midst of writing my own dissertation, and I just feel overwhelmed thinking about trying to tackle that many different sources.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it was indeed um, a challenge. But I think that... um, you know, in a sense, I see the the heterogeneity of the sources and I think you're right, you know, maybe each um, each part, if not each chapter has its own sort of like reading methodology, you know, based on the on the sources that I'm working with. And in that sense, you know, there there was a lot of of work to do regarding, you know, how to read or how to approach each of the of the documents that were sort of like the focus of each of the chapters. Um, But what what I see, you know, the the sort of like the heterogeneity of the of the documents that make up sort of like my primary sources is that they index the really the pervasiveness, I guess, of the concern with race war, you know, so that you see it, you can use. You know, I can use plays, or I can use documents that were thinking about how to further develop agriculture and industry in the country. Or you could look at maps. You know, and in some way, there's there's a way to sort of like see, you know, how um, the concern with race war was at play um, in all these different, you know, um, areas of of um, of life. You know, throughout the long 19th century, and I think that you know, it was also, um, I sort of like stretched back. So, so you're right, you know, I started with, the, I, I, my research kind of started with the, with the case to in Yucatan, but I, I moved back uh, into even the late colonial period, because I was just really struck by how, you know, um, I could see Certain practices that were really important um, for the production of racial difference in the colonial period sort of like reappearing, um, you know, in, in these different moments very in sort of like very concrete ways. And so I, I just sort of like felt the need to rather, you know, to move backwards in time and really try to trace the recursiveness of these different practices.
0: Let's linger on on this recursiveness, actually, by uh, starting to look through your introduction. Uh, In this wonderful introduction, you lay out several different, very rich ideas, but let's focus on one passage from page seven that I think really gets at the heart of what the book is about. And to paraphrase, you say that the book aims to investigate the race war paradigm by naturalizing it and tracing how race war evolved as a rhetorical device. So, could you tell the audience a little more about what you mean here and the general aims of the book about studying these recurrences?
1: Yeah, um, that's a great question. So, um, so as I as I was telling you, you, know I think that when when I started reading, you know, calling through the newspapers of the of the nineteenth century, I just really. Um, was interested in, in how many different terms there are, you know, for, there were for, for, um, what I end up sort of like calling the race war paradigm, you know? So there were like the, there was a column on, on so-called, uh, barbaric Indians that were sort of like encroaching in, in Northern territories. Then there were, um, columns about the Caste war in Yucatan and also in, in the, in the region, um, of Puebla and, you know, and so there's sort of like all sorts of different categories that were that were used. Um, and so you can really see that there was, you know, like a, a very deep concern with race war um, in contemporary sources. And, you know, there's the historiography on on the specific events that I analyze in the, in the book has certainly recognized, you know, that and sort of like talked about the maybe paranoid um fears, you know, of criollo elites with with um with case wars. But they sort of like I I think engage with it as a as a transparent concern, you know. And what I was trying to do in the book was was maybe to think that whenever this rhetoric appears, um, it's less transparent or less evident than we might think. Um, what I wanted to do is to actually try to unpack, you know, what uh, what work was the rhetoric of race war doing of the fear of race war doing each time it was called upon in some way. Um, and in that sense, you know, to try to maybe historicize it or, or to present um, different ways in which it, you know, different projects that it might have facilitated. Um and you know the the book is by no means an exhaustive um, study, you know, of every single event that that could have, you know, that could be presented as part of of what I call the race war paradigm. It rather is, I, I, I instead sort of like try to offer maybe a hypothesis or to suggest, you know, certain ways in which I saw this rhetoric um, operating. Um, and thinking about, you know, sort of like each of these different moments as singular instantiations of the race word paradigm, but also trying to think about them as part of a broader um, or a sh- shared um, genealogy. Uh, and so in the introduction, I basically lay out, you know, that there are, there I, I see I kind of schematize um, the the what I call the race war paradigm and see and state that I see it operating in two basic modalities, that you know might be not as clear um, when you look at the sources, but I think that you know they help for analytical purposes. And so the first modality is the I guess what I call the external modality of the race war paradigm, where I see that whenever you know um, governing groups or elites were using um, the rhetoric of of the of how dangerous it was for a race war to erupt um, and, you know, how all the measures should be taken to avoid that. Um, They were first trying to situate Mexico um, in an Atlantic arena. So it was sort of like a diplomatic rhetoric that was used to navigate um, international affairs. Um, And so my argument here is that, you know, The the idea that race war was likely or unlikely to happen in a given polity, you know, at the 19th century was a way to sort of like situate that polity um, along a spectrum, you know, of uh, barbarism versus, you know, a status of of civilization and to try to introduce, you know, that particular um, polity within um, a given, you know, racial geography. Um, And so there, you know, I, I very much saw um the 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 rhetoric of race war sort of like playing you know as a as um yeah as a diplomatic tool you know to to negotiate how mexico's standing you know international standing but there was also sort of like a more internal modality um to the race war paradigm where it was more about you know managing racial difference internally um, and what i what i sort of like you know conclude there is that um the concern with race war interestingly seemed to haunt spaces that were more sort of like frontier spaces you know where um either the sovereignty of the nation or even of the colonial state weren't you know fully um rooted yet and also where you know there were visions to for the expansion of um Of a capitalist economy. Um, And so there were, you know, sort of like lots of negotiations um, happening at that level in in these areas. And in a sense, you know, calling or or making use of the race war rhetoric that had basically, you know, uh, that was a concern that crossed through um, partisan lines. Made it easier for certain, you know, exceptional measures to be implemented in this regions. So, in a sense, I see the internal modality of the race war paradigm um, being a helpful way to think about the racializing operations of legal exception, I guess, in these sort of like border areas of of uh, of Mexico's territory.
0: One of the strengths of this book is that it is divided into three parts where you look at three different regions of interaction with Mexico, both domestic and foreign, that develop this race war uh, discourse and paradigm. The first part of the book is the Bajío. and this part begins with a chapter titled Vanishing Indianness, Pacification, and the Production of Race in the 1767 Bajio Riots. Could you tell us a little bit more about these riots to help situate readers, and then also tell us how Indianness was "quote unquote" vanishing, according to colonial authorities?
1: Um, yeah, sure. So, so let's start with um, just offering a little bit of context of what the Bahia riots were. Um, so these were rights that erupted in 1767, shortly after the um, expulsion of the Jesuit order from Spanish territories, but also very much in relation to um, the implementation of certain measures that were expanding tributary exaction, taxation um, in into, you know, um, colonial and into colonial areas and that we now know these measures under the umbrella term of bourbon reform and so the chapter really um and so the the riots sort of like erupted trying to resist you know the encroachment of these of these measures and they happened in this area of new spain that was a really central area not only for you know, for New Spain as a colonial territory, but also but for the Spanish empire at large. Because the Bajío, as uh, John Tutino has, you know, um, aptly argued, was this region that was in charge of producing at the time the biggest amount of silver, you know, that was sustaining worldly transactions. So, um, you know, riots happening there really meant um, a very big threat to the you know to to the spanish empire you know even um So I focus on the report that was written by um, José de Galvez, who was a peninsular official that was appointed by the Spanish crown to oversee the implementation of these bourbon reforms in New Spain. And he arrived in 1765, and very shortly thereafter, you know, the riots erupted. And he was appointed by, who was then the viceroy of New Spain, to be basically the the general um, overseeing the punitive campaign in charge of pacifying and repressing the riots. Um, and so in very interesting ways, you know, Jose de Galvez would then become, would later become somebody who was, you know, o- overseeing colonial territories throughout Spanish America. Um, and so in a way, you know, I think that his first interaction in the riots uh, is a really helpful place to to parse out his thinking, um, where, you know, the threads of, of uh, punishment, profit, and race-making were sort of like, are all coming together. Um, so for José de Galvez, you know, you can see in his in his works, in the, in the reports and in other uh, works that he wrote, there was sort of like a very clear, he, he had the, the very clear concern of trying to make, you know, the to extract more revenue from colonial territories. And he had a number of ways to go about that. You know, he, he wanted to reorganize colonial bureaucracy and, and you know, implement a number of, of different um, measures. But one of the things that he really associated or, or sort of like was very clear on was that having a clearly or a neatly racialized social body was really important for being able to really uh, extract you know, as much profit as could be extracted from the population, um, from colonial populations. So for Galvez, um, and this isn't so outlandish if we look at the history, you know, where, where tribute was really, um, tribute that was exacted from Indian towns was a way of maintaining, I guess, uh, and reproducing racial difference. And so what Galvez wants to do is that he wants to, you know, extend the extraction of tribute that, um, you know, was legally supposed to be paid by, um, all castes, not only people who ascribed as, as, as Indian. Um, but that was historically not, you know, as effectively practiced precisely because, um, there was sort of like a spatial organization that facilitated the extraction of tribute from Indian towns. And that was the existence of, um, uh, republicas de indios or indian republics and spanish republics you know that that basically segregated the population in the heart of new of new spain but the baju wasn't really organized in that in that way and so um galvez has this this uh idea that new spain could actually you know has sort of like a, a larger um Indigenous population than the one it's extracting. It's you know that doesn't really correlate with the amount of of surplus value that um, that is being extracted from them. So he thinks that the indigenous population in New Spain was larger um, than you know what was being extracted through tributary um, exaction. and and he and he sort of like um, correlates this. By saying that, or he says that this is being caused by the fact that Indians are sort of like becoming, and this is kind of like a, a, a almost a direct quote, are becoming confused in um, the low plebs, you know. So, so in a sense, what I what I say there is that he has this this idea that. Um, Indians are basically becoming de-Indianized, you know, their their bodies are no longer being legible as Indian. And what he wants to do is to sort of like reinscribe that difference so that more profit can be um, extracted from them. Um, And he says, you know, that the ways in which these... um, So that's what I mean by vanishing Indianness, you know, by by the legibility of Indianness sort of like disappearing for colonial um, authorities. And he basically says that this is happening because, um, you know, um, people who used to live in Indian towns are maybe deciding to move into what he calls free territories, where, where, um, you know, where our, uh, that and by free territories he means these areas where tribute is not regularly exacted so he was really interested in sort of like you know transforming free territories so that they would not be free territories and that there would be enough control where so that tribute could also be exacted from people living in these areas that were not organized you know into the dual republic system um but also by reinscribing you know by by um, reinscribing certain uh, markers that would make race legible you know in or cased legible in the bodies of people and so um what interestingly he I think he uses the riots you know as an opportunity to implement all these measures so under his Uh, Under his perspective, the riots were the main cause of the riots were, in fact, you know, sort of like uh, Indians um, desire to become confused among the the plebe, you know, and uh, and basically a lot of his punitive measures are were directed towards trying to reinscribe Indian difference by having people who would be recognized as Indian use, you know, Indian attire, having to use a specific um hairstyle that would mark them as such, also impeding them from using, you know, certain uh epithets. Um and so Uh, And in that sense, you know, I sort of like see this effort to reinscribe Indian Difference also being very connected to his punitive campaign and also to his desire for the extraction of of um, of surplus value from the colony.
0: If I could just give a little testimonial as a reader, I have to say this this first chapter, this first part just had me hooked. Because I think a lot of us that don't necessarily study race primarily have a, a certain crude notion of what a case war or a race war is. And here you have an example of a colonial official thinking that a problem and, and the solution to uh, what he sees as a, as a racial political problem is that there's not enough people of color, or there's not enough colonialized people, essentially, or that they're not being categorized correctly. And I was just so surprised that a colonial official would look at a racialized conflict and say, clearly, the solution is to, in a way, create more racialized people. Um, That that was just so interesting and surprising to me. And I I think it would be a a very rich reading material for all sorts of people working in Mexican or colonial history.
1: Yeah, that was a great, uh, I, I really like your take on it.
0: Um, let's move to the second part of this chapter where we actually get to hear from the rebels in the Bahio. and the chapter is titled so that they may be free of all those things, theorizing collective action in the Bahio riots. And you analyze these pamphlets produced by villagers in the rebellion as a sort of rebuttal and accompanying piece to what the colonial observations or the colonial officials observations are. And you argue that they were rebelling specifically against this sort of racialized politics being put in place. So could you tell us a little bit more about these rebel sources and how you uh take a reading on them to try and understand how uh colonized peoples are responding to this racial politics?
1: Um yeah, of course. So um so again, like I I, I think that in this chapter, you know, the again I I really honed into the discrepancy um that exists, you know, between how the sources that were written by people who were participating in the riots uh, were imagining, you know, their their actions and the ways in which um, colonial authorities were um, writing about them. Because ultimately there was this narrative, you know, that Galvez also promoted that um, the riots were basically trying to, that the ultimate goal of the riots was basically to expel or to even exterminate all whites um, in in the region. But, you know, it's really interesting once you see the sources, there's actually, you know, there's never a reference, a direct reference, at least in the ones that I uh, worked with, to whites, you know, as such. So there's sort of like a you know like a, even a, a different a discrepancy in terminology you know um between the sources that were written from the perspective of the rebellion and from the from colonial authorities so i really sort of like tried to 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 work with that and um and then also to to maybe think that you know if we are to really understand or try to if we really want to grapple with uh, or want to to uh, to say that you know the riots were in some way in fact grappling with with race and with racialization i think that we might be misled if we only look at sort of like these moments where there are some explicit reference to um you know violence against gachupines, mostly that's the terminology that appears you know in the in the sources and instead i sort of like say that we might want to focus you know um on, on, sort of like how these sources are engaging with race as something that is produced at a more structural level. Um, and so my reading of the text actually doesn't really want to um, read them as documents that can help us sort of like faithfully reconstruct what happened. I'm more interested in sort of like trying to see how the texts are theorizing their own political action, you know, how they capture the um, visions of emancipation that the people writing them were engaged in. Um, and so in that sense, you know, I sort of like really tried to not see the demands or the visions that are presented in the text as sort of like narrow, conjectural, you know, sort of like restricted to very narrow demands, uh, but actually tried to see those demands as uh, efforts to basically restructure the substance of life in these towns in the Bajío. And so if, as I argue, you know, um, in the first chapter, tribute was really like a very important institution in the production of racial difference, how how might we think that challenges, you know, to tribute or texts that are saying we are not going to accept, you know, we demand that we no longer pay tribute, how might we understand them not as narrow demands, not, you know, to not pay tribute, but also as... um, as efforts that are challenging you know um the ways in which race is burdening uh, was was burdening um these you know the lives of of these towns and the people in them um yeah. And so in a sense, also, I, I, I also maybe I, I can also add that, you know, and they so they were rejecting tribute, they were rejecting taxation. And in some sense, you know, these taxing measures were also sort of like recharting, you know, they were taxing products that used to circulate um, freely among different communities. And in taxing them, they were sort of like restructuring the networks, the local networks that had been sustained for four for years, you know. And so in a sense, I think that Um, The rejection of taxation is also, you know, sort of like a support for uh, um, or, yeah, an effort to to maintain communal alliances uh, and relations that had been in place for 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 years. And in that sense, rejecting sort of like the racialized um, geography that bourbon reform was trying to to entrench.
0: I think this is such a lovely reading of these sources because I think it can be so tempting to look at uh, a small town or small villages uh, rebel demands and say oh these are parochial people they're just interested in very petty or parochial things and I and I love how you read into that this this larger statement about what kind of world they're trying to make or what kind of relationship between themselves, others, the regime that they're trying to build. I think that you do a great job of of presenting and salvaging that that intellectual claim that clearly they are staking out. I think as you persuasively demonstrate.
1: Yeah, and uh, well, t- to add to that, I think that one one thing that is really interesting. I think that this happens because these texts sort of like really don't look like what we might expect, you know, from sort of like a a political manifesto. You know, they they they. Their textuality is is very different, um, but even in that, you know, I think that there's something really interesting because they these texts, of course, they don't they by no means present like a homogenous view of the riots. You know, there wasn't something like that even, um, so the texts don't don't present that. But in a really interesting way, I think that all these texts that were written from different locations um, are all offering their own theory, their own vision of the riots as sort of like a uh thinking and acting movement you know that is very that has to be sustained through um collective action so in that sense we don't really know like what their goal they don't state clearly you know like what the goal is it's something that is to be found i guess in the process of uh of communal alliance building you know and i really like that idea that it's not sort of like something that is prescribed um ahead of the movement itself, but something that these texts are really sort of like open to discovering what that new world is going to look like in the process of collectively building it and challenging, um, you know, the encroachment of, of, uh, of colonial measures upon them.
0: Let's look at the final part of this, of part one of the book. It ends with the first coda titled From the Country to the City, movement, labor, and race at the end of the 18th century. And one topic of this chapter that I found particularly interesting was the concept of policía, which I think if people, if the listener speaks some Spanish now, they understand means police today, roughly. But what was policía at the end of the colonial period? Because you argue it actually meant uh, something more expansive than that. And how were movement, labor, and race understood through this concept of policía at the end of the colonial period?
1: Right. So maybe it's helpful to also say a little bit about how I imagined the codas, you know, so the book is organized in three parts. It has you know, two and each part has a coda. And what I wanted to do with the codas was to um, to sort of like offer readers snapshots of how some of the things that I had discussed in the previous chapters were repurposed and reappeared um, in different contexts. Um, you know, a little bit later, so that, you know, they could keep in mind the recursiveness, you know, of the race war paradigm as they moved through through the book. Um, so in this particular coda, I um, I work with Hipólito uh, uh, Villarroel's text Enfermedades políticas de la Nueva España or The Illnesses of the Political Illnesses of New of New Spain where you know um he makes use of and this is a text that actually wasn't published at the time that it was written it was published um later you know when once Mexico was actually like independent from from Spain but still I think it's a text that's really fascinating to to sort of like try to trace some of these uh, repurposings of what Galvez was doing earlier on. Um, and so Biarel um, in this text you know makes use of the of, of a common analogy you know of, of trying to diagnose a social body, um, as one would the human body, you know, so he basically tries to point out what are the what is the illness of of New Spain, which he has really vivid descriptions, you know, of how he sees it as a very um, sick social body that has become basically like totally infected. Um and, uh, and so here comes, you know, your, your question about policia. So he, he basically sees it as a place that has no policia, you know, and it has to. And policia means at this time an umbrella term. is an umbrella term that was used to touch upon notions of stability, courtesy, urbanity, good behavior, um, hygiene, you know. But it also named, I guess, the measures that colonial authorities could um, implement to promote all these, you know, desired habits in the, in the population. So what, is int- what was interesting to me in, the, in, in doing this code is that um, I was trying to, Villarroel has some similar concerns um, with Galvez. You know, he also sees that basically New Spain has become uh, this very um, sick space precisely because there are no clear um, case lines you know, legible. And this happens because people are moving, you know, en masse from the interior territories and into the city. So he's mostly concerned with Mexico City, but he sees Mexico City as, you know, sort of like indexing a problem that is happening in New Spain, um, you know, in sort of like the inland territories of New Spain and producing the mobility of people into into the city. And then, you know, basically creating a social body that is racially illegible. And so, like Galvez, he he, was—he—he sort of like offers, you know, some strategies to help reorganize um, the the social body so that it becomes legible again, and so that policia can, you know, exist. Um, in a way. And so that, you know, that, and in this sense, it's much more moralistic, you know, he really isn't as concerned as, you know, Galvez was sort of like really pragmatic and very uh, centered on profit. And um, Villarreal is less concerned with that. He's more sort of like concerned with, um, in, you know, creating behaviors that, that, you know, can be understood as good or as um, Uh, Yeah, as cherished and that, you know, produced like an orderly social body, I guess, you know, a ruly social body. Um, But what is interesting to me is that, you know, although he's sort of like and he's also less militaristic, you know, but even even if that is the case, he still is concerned with the eligibility of case lines and basically also. Um, associates this eligibility With um, the race war paradigm So he says, you know, that that One of the main causes um, Of the mobility of people from the Interior into Mexico City Are the raids that are happening, you know The raid from what he calls barbaric Tribes in the north um, On uh, northern Spanish Settlements, and these raids are He sees them, he sort of like has This nightmare scenario where he sees the raids Encroaching further and further down Into new Spanish territory and imagines, you know, that at some point they might even get so far as to take over Mexico City. Um, And so, you know, basically he he thinks that it's these raids that are displacing people and creating this mobility and and then the, the, you know, sort of like the racially illegible social body. And so he again offers a number of measures to to try to to reconstruct, you know, these racial lines and to basically, you know, send people out of Mexico City and back uh, into their uh, into the interior territories. Um, and labor is really like an important uh, part of this. So he he really sort of like hones into how labor can be, um, a, a, you know, sort of like an agent of moralizing and of sort of like refixing um, certain people, you know, back into their, into their lands.
0: It is a very interesting concluding uh, section to what, how how I started to think about this part one was an investigation of movement and fixity in space and race. And I I think it's a very good concluding uh, piece to that to see at the end of the colonial period, how, how are those three concepts understood under this umbrella term of policia? Let's, let's take a look at part two of the book, which is called and about Haiti. It develops a plastic understanding of the Haitian Revolution in Mexico in the first half of the 19th century. This part of the book begins with a chapter titled The Domino Effect. Haiti, New Spain, and Racial ped- Pedagogy of Distance. And maybe I should say the Domino Affect, I think, which is a very clever uh, title there. In this chapter, you examine how the Haitian Revolution was understood before 1808 in New Spain using the work of Juan Lopez de Cancelara. Could you tell us about this source and what conclusions you drew from it?
1: Yeah, so this text is a really, um, I think it's a really fascinating text that I just um you know, like bumped into one day and I just was fascinated by it. Um in in because I think it's very interesting in, in what it presents. Um so this is a text that is um a translation actually of uh Louis Dubroca's um um, life of Dessalines. and Louis Dubroca was basically somebody who belonged to Napoleon Bonaparte's entourage, and he was, you know, writing different texts to proselytize uh, in his favor. And so he writes this biography, supposed biography of of Dessalines that is actually a very negative and racist take on the Haitian Revolution. Um, and the text was translated, um, you know, up to the point where Dessalines had been proclaimed uh, emperor of Haiti. Um, and so um the text was actually translated into several languages um and Lopez de Cancelada was who was the the editor of the of New Spain's um newspaper um he um he basically you know was in charge of, of doing a translation for New Spanish for a New Spanish readership um and he wrote an introduction to it and also included you know a translation of um, Celine's speech during the coronation ceremony and a translation of the 1805 um, Haitian Constitution. So um, what I, I just was very interested in, in the fact, you know, especially given the, the scholarship, you know, about Haiti and how wary, um, neighboring colonial sites were, you know, about the the dissemination of revolutionary ideas in their spaces. It just seemed very fascinating that, you know, a colonial authority in charge of a colonial of the most important colonial uh newspaper of the of the Viceroyalty, you know, was deciding to publish um a story about, you know, a brief history about the about the Haitian Revolution that, you know, true was a very negative take on the Haitian revolution, but it included, you know, the the speech and the and the Haitian constitution itself. So that really, um, you know, I had like this big question, sort of like, why did he think this was a good idea? And so the conclusions that I draw from there. So what I think is that we see, one is that we see um, Lopez de Cancelada sort of like using the press in, in a very interesting uh, way um, perhaps divergent, you know, from, from what we might've expected at the time, you know, where instead of sort of like trying to say, well, what we're going to do is that we're going to try to impede the circulation of, of, of information is actually like, let's preempt it, you know, what, what he tries to do with this text. And he has this moment where he says, you know, the, the worst, um, the worst error a ruler can make is to ignore something that is happening, you know, uh, leagues away, just because um, he believes that, you know, that it's distant. He says, you know, we, we see the physical world and he makes this, this analogy with, you know, a stone that falls in a lake and produces the ripple waves and sort of like saying that at some point, this is going to get to us. And so I think he, through that analogy, he presents that the text as, um, as a way, as a tool that might help prepare his new Spanish readers, you know, for the, um, for the reception, uh, for the way in which he wants them to receive, you know, um, news about, about Haiti's revolution. And so in that sense, he's basically starting to use the press as a tool that can help, you know, shape the minds and affects of, uh, of the readership. You know, and he seems quite confident. That's what's also interesting to me, that, that he can succeed in this uh, endeavor. And so, um, but I also think that, you know, he's confident in that because what he's, he's sort of like invested in, in thinking about New Spain as a colonial site that is very different from the Sandomang domingue where the Haitian Revolution sparked. You know, and so he presents New Spain as a place that has been com- completely impermeable to the revolutionary ideas of Haiti, and a place where racial harmony um, exists. You know, and so in that sense, I see I see him as sort of like being very invested in in imagining um, New Spain as being totally distinct, you know, and very distant from what Saint-Domingue was on the eve of the of the revolution. You know, um, but you know, in some sense, there's also in, in the chapter, I also wonder, you know, like, well, there there is, um, I guess, a lesson he thinks is is to be learned by his readership um, and about Haiti. And I think that that suggests, you know, what he thinks is translatable between um Domingo and New Spain. And he says that the lesson is that, you know, um, people who are White in a colony where there, where the majority is non-white, you know, and he says, you know, where the majority is blacks and other castes, um, that's that's the terms; those are the terms he uses. Um, ought to ought to be unified, you know, among them. So whites need to stay united in order to confront, you know, the dangers of race war, and that's the main lesson that you know his he wants his readers to take from um, his. Te- from his presentation of, of dubroca's translation, and so what i what I glean from this is that this is a moment where we we start to see um, colonial elites in New Spain think of themselves as analogous to or as, as you know occupying sort of like a similar position to other white um elites in other colonial sites and as such you know sort of like starting to create a um shared understanding of their whiteness um uh and so i think that you know dubroca's um translation of the text is that is this investment in trying to insert you know and to and to sort of like expand the the networks of this whiteness and to situate uh, and to see new Spanish criollo and peninsular elites you know as sharing um, the whiteness of other um, colonial sites
0: This chapter presents uh, such a complex, understanding of new spanish or at least elite new spanish understandings of the haitian revolution because i think it's very easy from the literature today to get the impression that everyone in the broader caribbean was sort of panicked by it but i think this this demonstrates this very ambivalent um degree of caution but also relative confidence that actually new spain is different that somehow the the colonized people there the whites there are different and better or wiser somehow the next chapter picks up these ideas and highlights how they actually transition and when the real fear of, of the Haitian model starts to, to take a bigger hold in New Spain. And appropriately, it's titled Staging Fear and Freedom. It picks up after the 1808 crisis in the Spanish Empire and examines how the Haitian Revolution was reevaluated in that context in the greater imperial crisis after 1808. To my delight, you tackle this question by examining the reception and censorship of plays about slavery staged in New Spain and the Metropole. Now, obviously, we don't have time to get into every detail of these plays and their plots, but could you roughly tell us a little bit about these plays that you examine and what changed in at least state perceptions of these plays before and after 1808?
1: Yeah, of course. So basically in this chapter, you know, what what I start with the chapter sort of like starts with um, a sudden change, you know, that that seems to have happened in how, as you said, you know, how um, elites were, were thinking about Haiti. So if Cancelada, you know, in 1806 was thinking about Haiti as something that was totally foreign and that could never permeate or happen um, in New Spain, suddenly, um, you know, in 1810, we have... Um, abadiqueipo the bishop of of Michoacan you know the the renowned bishop of Michoacan writing about the Hidalgo revolt as something that is exactly the same that had happened in Haiti you know sort of like basically Haiti is now being repeated in in New Spain and so i really had this question of how can we go you know in 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 such a short amount of time from this perspective to this one and so i i use the plays you know as a way of trying to Bridge that gap, you know, between these two positions, and think, you know, and try to think about what happened. So these are two plays um, that were uh, the first one is um, El Negro Sensible, and the second one is um, El Negro y la Blanca, and these were two plays that were actually, you know, written by Peninsular play, playwrights um, at the end of the 18th century, and they were staged in Spain, but also in New, in New Spain's Coliseum. Um, and they were plays that were critical of of slavery in different ways. You know they have different plots, um but they both um were critical of of slavery um in in the americas and and in africa and uh and so, what I thought was interesting is that the plays were sort of like you know uh, approved by censorship by censoring institutions to be staged in uh in New Spain without any question um you know at the very beginning of the 19th century and by 1809 they are banned because they are seen as being revolutionary and because they're seen as promoting um you know the the rebellion of slaves against their masters um and so I I try to 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 say like well what happened you know what why were they staged you know why were they accepted for staging without any problem uh you know at some point you know, just like a couple of years before and suddenly, you know, they're seen as revolutionary. And of course, you know, in a sense you could think that these, you know, that that censorship practices tended to be volatile. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I make the argument that there's something more happening there. And what is happening there is that what, you know, basically um, in 1808, um, the Spanish empire is, you know, it starts going through this deep political crisis that stems from the invasion of Napoleon into Spain and the deposition of Ferdinand VII that creates, you know, the what the scholarship has called as the vacuum and sovereignty that then creates, you know, the the, the courts of Cadiz and ultimately, you know, opens the door to to the struggles that will lead to to independence. And so, in a sense, you know, I think that through this turmoil that the um, that the Spanish Empire is going through, um, colonial um, authorities. Start to think about the um, population, you know, under their command in different terms, and in this way, you know, I, I I think that if you know, in some sense, New Spain's Indianness was was first thought to be very different, you know, from um, the ways in which Haiti's blackness was was perceived. Um, at this point, it almost seems like. Uh, New Spain's indigenous populations are, you know, totally um, equivalent to um domingues enslaved black, black population that rebelled, you know. And and, uh, and so in a sense, you know, the, the idea that um, this changing perception of the colonial population, I think, is captured in the changes in censorship where, you know, at the beginning, these plays were never, were not seen as revolutionary or even, you know, dangerous in any way, uh, but then, you know, are actually sort of like thought to be promoting um, something that colonial authorities don't want to to promote. Um and it's interesting too because you know the critiques of slavery, um that they're so so concerned with the critiques of slavery is also something that is interesting to me because ultimately, you know, New Spain, there was still the practice, you know, had by no means abolished slavery, but slav- but slavery was not, you know, the the main uh was not as prominent, you know, as it was in in domingue on the eve of the revolution. So um that they're so concerned, you know, with plays that are staging um critiques of slavery also is interesting and sort of like also suggests that they're, they're, they're sort of like starting to read the the messages of the place in a different tone and maybe thinking that there might be some sort of like subversive political message to them that needs to be, you know, um, removed from the side of colonial um, stages.
0: I think this chapter does an excellent job of, of demonstrating how uh, in, in, especially in conjunction with the with the first part, where we can see how colonial officials are thinking about racializing colonial subjects in New Spain, here we can see another sort of shift, where all of a sudden, not only are they indigenous, but now also indigenous is much closer to blackness than it had been just eighteen months or twenty four months beforehand. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting transition that you lay out here.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Part two concludes with an interesting coda titled Haiti and Mexico's Early Republican Context on the revolutionary example that Haiti set for criollo nationalists in Mexico. Could you tell us how Mexican independence or in the, in the the process of Mexican independence, how the race war paradigm changed or started to understand the Haitian revolution differently?
1: Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I wanted to do in this coda is that I, I, I wanted to to build on um, Sybil Fisher's more recent work on the Haitian Revolution, so she has this really interesting article um, where she writes about uh, about Simón Bolívar and the Haitian Revolution, and she basically says, you know, that we might be, you know, limiting our understandings of how uh, Criollos perceived, you know, Haiti um, if we only think about, you know, how they wanted to to avoid anything like that happening, you know, and she sort of like says, well, maybe we can think that there was, you know, Haiti ultimately um, had become a a much more stable um, nation, you know, at the beginning of the 19th century. And so she sort of like wonders, you know, could it not be, you know, with could it... uh, uh, another republic you know too so could it not be that that criollos were sort of like inspired you know by by haiti's republicanism um after the revolution and that you know they were not just you know trying to see it as something to be avoided um and so you know that sort of like opened the question for me of like well how were it how were Criollos, um, in fact, you know, engaging with Haiti's revolution during the time of of the independence and also in its aftermath? Um, and in that sense, you know, I think that it also um, the question opened uh, an avenue for me to think about how they were, how some people were mobilizing um, the fear of race war in their favor and against colonial authorities. So we, so here I talk, for instance, about um preserving Teresa de Mier you know who um was advocating um you know was sort of like um talking about people who were advocating for larger representation of the Americas in the courts of of Cádiz um and and was and we're doing so by sort of like saying well you should keep the um you know you should you should try to keep colonial populations happy um, because if you don't keep them happy, then, you know, there's this concern with uh, race war. So you should really sort of like, so here there's sort of like a a, a moment, you know, a, a difference from Galvez um, and uh, Villarroel sort of like being announced, you know, where, where, where actually they're sort of like trying to suggest like let's incorporate um racialized and and colonized populations and keep them happy so that you know political uh inst- the political instability of a race war doesn't ensue and so in that sense they're sort of like trying to to gain. You know, the creators are trying to gain the representation that they're searching for by um, making colonial authorities and, and Spanish authorities aware of the potential of a race war in colonial sites. You know, um, but what I what I try to make the case for is that they're not, you know, just sort of like directly expressing their own concern, but they're actually sort of like showing that they're using this re- rhetoric as a as a political tool to leverage their own interests. Um, so that's one part of the Coda, and uh, the other part is, you know, toward once independence has achieved has been achieved, I, I try to think about, you know, moments in which Creoles um, tried, like, yeah, certain Creoles tried to sort of like create some proximity with Haiti, trying to 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 create an alliance, you know, between Mexico and Haiti, that would help actually push against um, Spanish efforts to try to to take back, you know, um, territories that had already pro- proclaimed their independence from Spain. Um, and so, so I also there, you know, suggest that there that there was this moment where um, Criollo elites, you know, saw Haiti not only uh, as a Nightmare to you know that that as a, the figure of uh, the paradigmatic figure of of race war that should be avoided at all costs, but could also maybe think about it you know as a as a Republican sister you know that could um help in 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 curtailing you know sort of like Spain's uh, efforts to try to recover some of the lost territories.
0: This transitions us uh, neatly into Mexico's national period, and this brings us to the final and largest section of the book, which is on the Yucatan Peninsula. It is a wonderful section. Uh, let's try and get uh, as much of a survey of, of as, as we can. This section covers the period and aftermath of the case war and begins with the chapter titled On Criminality, Race, and Labor, Indenture in and the Case War. And this chapter forms a part of very important scholarship in the last 10 to 15 years, including yours, which has been very groundbreaking, on the enslavement and deportation of Maya peoples during the 19th century. Can you tell us a little bit about these deportations and then also about the debates on the issue at the time, which is the the sort of main argument you, you interact with in this chapter? Um,
1: yes, of course. So then... I already um, gave, I guess, a brief summary um, about the case war at the beginning of the interview, so I won't um, go over that. But I, I will say that you know one of the one of the strategies that Criollo elites tried to implement as a way of pacifying the rebellion was basically to expel um, the Maya population from the Yucatan Peninsula. And so they, to do this, they entered into transactions with uh, Cuban plantation owners um, who were, you know, under the pressures that the Atlantic slave trade was going through um, in the mid 19th century. Were sort of like trying to find other um, other ways to 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 replace, you know, the the to replace the the slavery system that they relied upon. Um, and so, you know, Cuba at this time opened the door to uh, um, a network of indentured laborers that were coming from Asia, but also from Mexico. Um, and this is something that I think is is less known, you know. Um, and it's hard because I think that it's less known because, the you know, there aren't many documents that have been pulled out from the archives. So I think there's a lot of archival work to be done there. Um, and I think some people are already on it and there's, there's really interesting work that will come out from, from interesting and important work that will come out from this that will allow us to see, you know, like what, what were the lives like of people who were being deported, you know, from Yucatan to, to, to Cuba to work, you know, um, on the plantations as indentured workers. Um, but my interest in this chapter was to think about this, uh, network of indenture, um, not really, you know, I think that most of the time there's, there's this effort to try to think about how indenture is distinct from um, slavery. And that wasn't really what I was trying to, to do in this chapter. What I wanted to do was actually to situate the network of indenture in relation to broader sort of like practices, uh, punitive practices, um, you know, that were sort of like that had been practiced in the colonial period and that somehow were now being revitalized in the context of of Yucatan's cased war um and so um th- there was you know like a really there was a really important debate at the time, if if in in newspapers and in diplomatic exchanges, you know, of people who supported um, the um, selling of Maya men, women and children into indenture in Cuba, and people who were very against it. And so I try to sort of like offer in the in the chapter, I offer a critique uh, uh, a critical um, analysis of both responses, you know, and what was at stake in both of them. Um, and so I see that, you know, for people who were um, supporting the network of indenture, they were just, you know, like invested in, um, you know, mostly this were Yucatec um, um Hacendados and Yucatec authorities who were just really uh, interested. They just wanted to get rid of, of as most uh, Maya population as they could to, to gain control back over the peninsula and pacify um, the rebellion. Um, but they, you know, they had a lot of work to do, I guess, to legitimate these transactions because they were receiving pressures from um, from federal um Um, federal authorities that were sort of like concerned that what they were doing was basically reinserting Mexico into the practice of slavery that had been abolished, you know, after independence. And so there was on this one part, you know, like um, people who were very invested in sort of like protecting Mexico's stance in the international arena as a place, you know, that had abolished slavery and uh, and that participated in republican uh, ideals, you know, and that could by no means be engaged in something that was proximate to. Um, slavery, and then other people, and then you know the people who who were supporting the the network of indenture, who had to figure out how they could legitimate and present the what they were doing um, in a light that could sort of like escape the censorship, uh, and could you know could the censorship of those who were policing you know the the Atlantic slave trade and presented as something that was totally different from that. Um, and so you know they the people supporting the 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 network basically resorted to um to discussions you know about international law and uh you know how war was you know to be managed between two nations, basically suggesting that the case war was sort of like had come to be you know uh an actual war between you know uh two separate nations rather than sort of like an internal conflict um and they actually ultimately ended up presenting you now the practice as though as a, as a humanitarian practice that because they were not you know they 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 were sort of like um being merciful enough not to kill um the pe- the, the maya captives and rebels who had, you know, who who had been seditious for rebelling, but actually just, you know, um, instead of killing them, sending them, you know, to to work in Cuba and where they could, you know, labor for for ten years—that was the the span of the contracts—and ultimately the idea was that they might be reformed and they then could come back, you know, to Mexico as reformed subjects to reincorporate themselves into the country. Um, And so they they mobilized this idea about how humanitarian their actions, in fact, were, you know, because they were sparing them, sparing the people that they were sending into Cuba from from a justified death, um, from what they perceived, you know, was a justified death. Um, And interestingly, you know, the the. People who who were detractors from the from the network of indenture also were sort of like invested in in, in humanitarianism, um, and sort of like wanted to to safeguard you know Mexico's reputation as a as a you know um, as a as a nation that was at the avant-garde you know of republican values. But what I argue is that that's not really all that was at stake. You know what they they. I I sort of like found this really interesting document that suggests that, you know, there's this concern about how. beginning to have transactions, you know, that that um, expel indigenous population might might deplete the nation from its indigenous workers, you know. So I ultimately see um, the debate happening between these two parts as a debate about, you know, the place that uh, Indian labor was to have within the nation, you know, and sort of like people who who didn't want um the, the trade to begin're not just sort of like uh, against it in principle but also had sort of like a pragmatic reason you know they they were concerned with um the the diminishing work uh, indigenous workforce that would ensue from this type of of transactions
0: I think this chapter is. So provocative. And like you said, there, there's a lot of research left to be done on this topic, a lot of great research that's coming out uh, about this topic. And so I, I hope that this chapter breaks out and I would encourage this chapter to be, to, to be studied by anybody who works on humanitarianism and imperialism in the, the 19th century, because I think it's such an interesting example uh, of how humanitarianism is leveraged by both sides of the debate to justify uh, various positions. Let's take a look at the second chapter here titled The Shapes of a Desert: The Racial Cartographies of the Case War. This chapter examines how maps made during the war paint very different pictures of the Yucatan Peninsula depending on how the creator engaged with the race war paradigm. So could you tell us a little bit about the maps that you look at here and how they differ?
1: Um yes. So so yeah, so one thing that I was really um that i wanted to to do in this in this chapter was to to think about how um you know the the different visions of the of the peninsula had also sort of like different um specialities you know um so in a sense trying to to show that um, there was, you know, sort of like a, a, that the, the the case war was also, I guess, a struggle over land itself, but also a struggle over um, the production of space, you know, and how life was going to be lived in, in that space. Um, so what I... Uh, I sort of like um read a number of maps, well read or, or analyze a number of maps that were produced, you know, uh um at like after the case war happened and try to see how they are representing the the Yucatan Peninsula area. And so what I I basically analyze um three perspectives. The first one is the perspective, sort of like the military perspective, which is interesting because um you know there's there's this idea that of course um gaining um you know knowledge about uh, the area would uh, allow for the repression or the pacification of the rebellion to happen um. You know more easily, and so there were a number of expeditions. You know, military expeditions sent by by Mexican officials and the Yucatan state into um, rebel territories to try to sort of like scope out the area and produce maps that would, you know, tell um, the military campaigns where different um, rebel settlements were, so that you know the the ultimately the the military campaign to repress them would be more effective. And so what we have from these maps is actually like a pretty detailed um, vision, you know, of where these different territories are. Um, and this, you know, like detailed vision of rebel, of this rebel area really contrasts with um, maps that were produced from what could be maybe a more... Um, economic perspective you know or um and so here i i I offer an analysis of of antonio garcia cubas's maps you know that are the their antonio garcia cubas was probably the most renowned um geographer of of the 19th century and he produced these like beautiful maps that were basically designed to um circulate, you know, many of them abroad, you know, attracting, presenting Mexico as a place that was, you know, so rich in natural resources and, um, and developing industries, um, you know, and ready for for the uh, investment of of foreign capital. Um, And so in these maps, he actually presents the 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 Yucatan Peninsula as a space, you know, and particularly the rebel areas, um, as a completely like blank space. You know, there's basically no traces of small towns in that region. Um, And so I was just really interested in the contrast, you know, between the military perspective and this sort of like more economic perspective that kind of wanted to project, you know, the, the void that was there as a way of, of, um, of already sort of like eliminating the rebellion and incorporating these lands as natural uh, lands, you know, ready for, for ready to be developed. Um, But in a sense, I sort of like also read, you know, the, the absence in in Garcia Cubas' maps, you know, as the uh, as an index of the actual um, control, I guess, that um that rebel territories had over these lands you know because um and that rebel communities had over these lands because in a sense you know really like um you know knowledge about those territories was um very difficult to come by and was by you know they even military campaigns struggled you know to sort of like get into those lands and 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 try to sketch out um maps of the of their of the region Um, and in fact, you know, there's this, this document by a, by a British, um, topographer who goes, who tries to go, so there's, the, the case war also has this very interesting aspect of it where um, rebel communities were in constant um, negotiations, you know, with British settlers in Belize, um, trying to determine, you know, to, to get um, resources for livelihood, but also to sustain the rebellion in exchange for um, logging certain uh, types of wood, you know, that were cherished um, in the global market. Um, and so, and also at, at some point, there was a, an effort to negotiate um, the potential incorporation of certain rebel territories into the British monarchy. So there's sort of like this very interesting, you know, um, frictions that are happening, you know, at, at different imperial and local uh, and national levels. Um so there's this survey by a topographer who who goes in from from Belize and and basically you know goes into is, is allowed to enter rebel territories, and um, he basically talks you know about how he has to be very careful about how he surveys the land because uh, people who are living in the rebel territories you know don't want their territories uh, measured or marked. They don't want any maps produced you know about. Um, any maps on the area to, 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 to be produced. Uh, and so I read this, you know, as, as, as part of the, of the imaginary of, of rebel communities who were really um, trying to safeguard their autonomy and who were aware that the, the protection of the autonomy they had been able to build was not only something to be safeguarded at a material level, but also at a more symbolic level, you know, and so aware of the work that mapping uh, practices could do to sort of like, um, you know, ultimately debilitate their, their, their resistance um, and I also um, offer you know like a, a a reading of of some of the letters that were penned by rebel communities where where we can see again you know their emancipatory visions um, captured and I'm really interested in sort of in in thinking you know how they were thinking about equality in in really interesting ways um, but how this equality was tied to also creating a unregulating Unregulated spatiality, you know. So, in a sense, the letters also have their own vision of how to organize and create space uh, in the Yucatan Peninsula in a way that would or- have sort of like a different organization of life, you know, that was based on on a certain form of equality that challenged. Um, the limitations or that went beyond the limitations of uh of liberal universal equality, so there's this really fascinating uh, letter that basically says you know that all uh, indigenous mestizos blacks, and whites will be free, and they can all plant their will be free of taxes will be free of paying this amount for marriage, but they will also be free to plant their milpa or their you know their um Plots of of um, for agriculture wherever they please, you know, and so they have this this sort of like move toward, um, yeah, toward, sort of toward imagining, you know, like an open spatiality that is um, in some sense accessible to to all, but without the the sort of like abstractness
0: of all. The final coda of the book is titled "Barbarous Mexico: Racialized Coercive Labor from Sonora to Yucatan." Here, you connect the deportation of Maya peoples with the deportations of the Yaquis from Mexico's northern borders. Could you tell us about how these deportations are connected and the particular uh, labor shortage that is motivating the deportation of the Yaquis that elites claimed was plaguing the country? Because they're they're fearing a different sort of labor shortage than maybe what most people usually think of when they hear the word labor shortage.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I thought that this was um, you know, the the Yaki deportations and specifically, you know, happening to Yucatan was a very, you know, so sort of like a very, very clear example of a um practice that was implemented, you know, um within the bounds of the race war paradigm. Um, to sort of like control a uh, and pacify a, an uprising. So as had as had been the case in Yucatan during the years of the of or at the height of the caste war, you know, where um, criollo um, hacendados were invested in in deporting Maya population to to Cuba, you know, into into so that they would live there as indentured workers in in sugar plantations in in the island. Um, and they were using that as a means of, of pacifying. So too, um, at the beginning of the of the 20th century, we have the case of, um, you know, a, an increasing Yaqui rebellion in the um, northern um, region of of, uh, of Mexico. And again, the efforts to the way in which the the repression happens there is that you know people. Like Criollo authorities um decide that the one way to 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 sort of like control the uprising is to um deport um yaqui rebels you know from sonora um and you know other neighboring um states into yucatan um and so and so in this case, you know we see like the the network of indenture is happening. Uh, within the nation, not, you know, outside of it, as was the case in the case war. But it's a very similar practice that is being now, you know, a practice of pacification to displace, um, you know, a group of people, groups of people who are perceived to be rebellious in order to gain regain control over, over a, a given area. Um, and this happens because, you know, um, once the cased war is um becomes you know more more contained um at the beginning of the twentieth century, Yucatan also um suddenly plunges you know into a huge economic boom because um the henneken industry has begun to is burgeoning you know and and Heneken is this uh plant that is used to make um fibers and ropes of all sorts of kinds and and just becomes like a very cherished commodity in the global market and so um the the henequen boom in yucatan basically requires you know uh, a large workforce um of uh of in, mostly indigenous people working you know in these um Heneken plantations um so it's a it's a racialized workforce that um is living in in, uh, in very very precarious dire conditions, you know, um, as has been documented in the in the scholarship, and to which you know like um, a big um, group of, of Yaqui people is you know um, added to, to basically, you know like um, confront the the alleged shortage of of workers that ha- Inican uh, Hacendados were facing. Um, and so in a sense, you know, they, we see the same, again, the same practice um, now sustained with sort of like an economic concern, you know, where, where well, we need workers to come uh, into Yucatan and basically, you know, the, the Hacendados in Sonora are concerned uh, with the threat of their rebel uh, Yaquis. And so they join in this transaction, you know, that sort of like is a mutual, uh, mutually beneficial um, agreement for them. Um, and so in this sense you know and I think that it's not uh, a coincidence that we see this practice sort of like being reinstated uh so shortly thereafter you know in in uh, in in Yucatan and so yeah the labor shortage labor shortage is this narrative you know that um that Yucatan basically that the caste war has depleted Yucatan of its of its you know, workers, and you know, they need to uh, import more um, workers. And so there are different projects. There's there's this project, you know, of 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 importing workers from um, from northern states who are participating in the um, Yaqui rebellions. Um, but there's also projects to um, you know import laborers from other places. Um,
0: So let's take a look at the final chapter of the book, which is titled Barbarous Mexico, Racialized, Coercive Labor from Sonora to Yucatan. And here you connect the deportation of Maya peoples with the deportation of the Yaquis from Mexico's northern borders. So could you tell us a little bit about these deportations and then the particular labor shortage that elites claimed was plaguing the country?
1: Sure. So, um this coda basically looks at the at how the practices of deportation that were used, you know, to pacify um, uh, indigenous rebellion at the time of the of the Caste War and how they were projected uh, internationally towards Cuba um became internalized toward the end of the 19th century and used, you know, sort of like within uh, within the nation, buttressing uh, Mexico's peonage system uh, right up to the dawn of the Mexican Revolution. Um, and so I more concretely, you know, as, as you pointed out in your, in your question, I um, look at how in the context of the longstanding Yaqui Rebellion that, um, you know, was waged in the northwestern states of the country um, the practice of deportation was used, you know, to displace um, Yaqui people from this region uh, and, um, you know, into Yucatan, where the boom of the Henneken uh, economy was um, starting, you know, uh, in relation to the thriving demand of the of the fiber um, of the Henneken plant that, you know, had been happening you know, probably since the late 19th century, but really sort of like took off um, at the beginning of the 20th. Um, and so what I what I do is that I follow the discourses about um, labor scarcity that began, you know, with the caste war when in the early stages of the rebellion, you know, there was, in fact, you know, a very large destruction of sugar plantations in the area and just... Uh, yeah, uh, an important blockage, I guess, of of uh, elites and uh, and was, um economic projects uh, at the time, and so the and also, you know, one of the one of the outcomes of the of the rebellion was a huge uh, migration of people from all. You know, sorts of black backgrounds and classes that, in fact, um, resulted in you know the actual um, scarcity of agricultural workers in the region, which I discuss in 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 the sixth chapter as you know some of them as tactics of of fugitive labor. Um, but so whereas, like at the beginning of the case where there was maybe you know like an actual um, scarcity of agricultural workers in the region, I. I'm interested in how this trope persists um, throughout moments where it seems where at least certain sources indicate that there wasn't any longer, you know, a scarcity of workers. Um, and I'm thinking of, um, in particular, of uh, John Kenneth Turner's, you know, famous book, Barbarous Mexico, um, where he discusses, you know, the, the really, like, um, the huge um, um, systems of of racialized work that are uh, racialized, coerced work that existed in the Valle Nacional and in Yucatan, and that were supporting uh, Mexico's, um, you know, thriving export economies. Um, And so... So what I, what I sort of like say is that, you know, if the, the discourses of the scarcity of labor in the region um, might be inaccurate, they're still interesting to try to trace shifts that are happening in ideas, you know, or in the connection of thinking about race and imported labor, be it, you know, foreign or uh, inter- internationally um, during the second half of the, of the 19th century um so you know whereas at the beginning of the of the of the century projects for foreign colonization were mostly attached to ideas about um trying to import uh european immigrants who would work in mexico's agriculture and who you know were framed as being white and as you know that 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 would not only bring workers into the nation but would also help whiten or expand Mexico's white population this was sort of like mostly the ideas that, that existed at the beginning of the century toward the end of the century we see sort of like Um, people may be starting to think that that is not feasible and instead starting to embrace uh, more, you know, sort of projects um, tied to the importation of uh, work from other um, parts of the world, um, specifically from Asia and Africa. And so I I look at how um, these You know, the idea of of importing Asian and African workers into Yucatan, um, you know, what type of of racializing discourses were implemented there. And what I... um and you know what what type of, of strategies, you know, to sort of like regulate that kind of work and to assuage concerns of elites with you know how the introduction of, of of racialized workers in areas that were already seen as strife for racial conflict, um, you know, how they could be appeased. Um and ultimately, you know, try to signal that um The concern with the scarcity of of laborers wasn't really, you know, had sort of like become moved from being, you know, like an actual concern to then uh, indexing more ideas about um, the quote unquote low quality. I guess, of indigenous work in Mexico. Um, And so in relation to the deportations, you know, of Yaqui people from Sonora to Yucatan, I also look at how um, mostly Yaqui men were racialized as being sort of like the best, uh, you know, indigenous laborers in the country and how their labor was sort of like, despite, you know, the rebelliousness of their, you know, the alleged rebelliousness of their, of their nature, they were the best workers. And so these um discourses these racializing discourses were used to support the practices of of the practices of deportation um you know that displaced thousands of people from Sonora and Chihuahua into into Yucatan Um, And then the coda, you know, sort of like ends by looking at how in the aftermath of the, you know, through and in the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution, um, the concern with race war that had been mostly attached to indigenous rebellions, then, uh, you know, sort of like is displaced and starts to be attached to incoming um incoming workers from Asia, you know, and sort of like buttressing um anti-Chinese and anti-Asian racism um in the context of the of the Mexican Revolution and its institutionalization. Um and this is something, you know, that I think that uh Jason Oliver Chang has really studied really well in his in his book um on anti-Chinese racism uh in in Mexico. Um but I sort of like end up looking at at that, you know, at sort of like the geopolitical rearrangement of the concern of race war um you know that from being sort of like internalized it's now again projected um to sort of like a global landscape and mexico trying to situate once again itself you know within in in one of the sources that i analyze could be seen as the league of the white nations you know um yeah
0: so you conclude the book with an excellent epilogue, bringing the race war paradigm up to the present day politics in Mexico. But I'll leave that as an incentive for readers to pick up the book. Before we go, though, could you tell us what you are working on now or what is next for your research?
1: Yeah, um, thank you so much for that question. I am currently I'm I'm just starting. Um a new a new project. But I I through the work that I did for this book, I really became interested in thinking about the connection between property and race um, in, in Mexico. So I've basically started to write a couple of articles on this topic and thinking about how um, ideas, you know, about, about property were invested with racial meaning um, at different moments of of the 19th i've started with the 19th century but i'm hoping to um, you know go go beyond that um maybe potentially even into 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 the present as this you know i as the as the, the book did you know it had sort of like this large um arc and i and as you said you know I, I end with the present i always sort of like try to think about how um the research i'm doing can you know be helpful in thinking about certain thinking through certain conjunctures of the of the present as well. So, so yeah, that's what I'm working on property and, uh, and race.
0: I think that sounds very interesting. My head's just going back over the the orientation of houses all the way in part one, chapter one of this book. So I, I'm excited to see what sort of uh, conclusions you'll draw in this research as well.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for your time Anna, and sharing this excellent book with the show.
1: Thank you. It was really lovely to talk to you.